If you want to find John chapter 12 this morning, <clears throat> we're taking a, a break over the next two Sundays. This week we'll be looking, it is Palm Sunday, so we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem one week prior to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And then, um, as BJ announced, next Sunday we won't have a service here. We'll be up at... Um, Cider Mountain Lodge and joining the other three churches for a service there. Um, we're super excited to do that with them and want to encourage you guys. Invite people. We have room. We have room. And we'll be outdoors. So I want to encourage you guys, if you're a little worried about getting cold, it'll be a shorter service, but bundle up. It may be a little chilly, but um, it's going to be fun. It'll be like a crisp resurrection morning experience. So that just sounds like a pastoral thing. To say. BJ's throwing out his pastoral things today. I'm like, all right, I'll throw out a few of my crisp resurrection morning uh, yeah, you're welcome. I don't know if you guys remember this. Um, I think most of you guys were here at this point last year, um, but we were locked down during Palm Sunday. Um, we, we actually were online only uh, for Palm Sunday last year, for Good Friday, for Easter service. It was the strangest Easter of my life. I don't remember one being that odd or, or felt feeling out of place. But last year, as we were in the midst of COVID lockdowns and restrictions, I read the following in an article by a Christian author who said, some churches that aim primarily for spiritual and emotional uplift may raise the tide of immediate post-quarantine excitement. And he followed it up with this, far more spiritual fruit will be born, however, in communities that directly address serious questions of life and death. Communities that seriously address the situation that we are all in as human beings, that we are going to die, and that after this, there is eternity. There's both life in this physical world, there will be death for us, but then there's going to be an eternity that follows. And communities that take the opportunity in a culture and a climate like we're currently in and address these things unabashedly, not looking to capitalize on the energy or emotional uplift that's going to come in the post-quarantine excitement the mask mandate was lifted this week, you know, for our area. And it was like, whoa, freedom. Not if you go to certain restaurants or places. No, um, that's, that's going to be, I mean, it's like, it, it really hasn't changed much for us. I don't think <laughs> for me anyway, I'm like, well, it feels the same. You guys, our hope is not in the freedom of post quarantine excitement. Our hope is not in something that the government can give or take away. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so that's why this time of year, as we look at the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, and as we look at his death on the cross, as we remember his resurrection, we celebrate that resurrection life, we recognize that the things that we hold fast to in this Christian faith are untouchable by human beings. They're not touchable by human beings. People can't change these things. You can't stop Jesus. You know, and Jesus made that clear. If you read the Gospel of John over and again, he's like, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? You're not touching me today, sir. Right? It says they wanted to throw him off a cliff in his own hometown in Nazareth. Jesus walks right through the crowd and leaves. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd be able to take on an entire crowd that wanted to throw me off the cliff. It would be a very good day to wear my parachute. You know, like that's, I, I wouldn't make it. Like I, I can't do that. But Jesus wasn't, he wasn't going to go until it was time. He was on a schedule. The father had given him a schedule. This is when this is going to happen. Even the moment that he rode into Jerusalem. We talked about this when we studied Daniel. Daniel, This was predicted that it would happen ahead of time. The day that he rode into Jerusalem, that that would be the day that Messiah, the prince, came into his town. 
And Jesus accomplishes that here in our study this morning. As we enter our observance of Holy Week, with today being Palm Sunday, there's no better place to directly address serious questions of death and life than looking at the death and the resurrection of Jesus. To make us aware of these realities of life and to recognize that there is something spiritual and physical culminating together in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we see a picture of our future. We see a picture of what we have in him in death, resurrection, and life afterwards. This morning we begin with the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. And as we prepare to remember the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem as king. And as we remember his crucifixion and his death on Friday, as we celebrate his resurrection one week from today, we're given a blessed opportunity, church, to observe, reflect, and meditate upon all that Jesus did. Satan will try to distract you. He always does. He always tries to distract you. I got distracted by a news story last night about a musical artist who's basically celebrating Satanism right now. In a horrifying way. Don't go look it up, please. I mean, you can if you want to. You're grown adults. You can do what you want. It's horrifying what's going on. What's being celebrated in culture? Satan will try to distract and steal away your joy. He's going to try and steal away your focus from Jesus. He's going to try and get your eyes on yourself. He's going to try and get your eyes on your problems or on how you've been wronged or on how other people have been wronged instead of looking to him to be the answer and the one who fulfills your life. He is going to distract you, not only all the time, but especially on a week where you are given a very focused opportunity to meditate on his death and resurrection. He is going to try and distract you. Don't let him do it. Don't let the enemy distract you this week. We want that spiritual fruit to be born from us because we faced the reality of his life, his death, his resurrection, recognizing that everything begins with him, everything will conclude with him, as Jesus himself testified in Revelation chapter 1. One of my favorite moments of the revelation of Jesus, when he reveals himself to John, and John, who knows him, who used to lay his head on him, just hits the ground at the very sight of the glorified Savior. And Jesus, in Revelation 1, says this, don't be afraid to John. It's cool, man. That's the message, virgin. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and Hades. I saw a statement this week that said it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I'm not kidding you. Major advertisement for a brand. I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. This is where our world is going. Now, we've been there before. Welcome to the post-Christian America. Church, we need to remember that Jesus holds the keys. And we need to preach that Jesus holds the keys. That type of stuff, it is offensive. But it's more tragic than it's offensive. It's tragic because there's people out there that actually believe it. That think that that's okay. That think that's a good mindset. That actually believe that it's better to have a high position in the lake of fire than it is to be serving the God who died on a cross for our sin. That is deception of the highest account. And it's repulsive because it's actually stealing people away from Jesus who wants to save them. Jesus is not only the way, truth, and life, John 14, 6, but he holds the keys to death and hell. Jesus was a man 
who understood what it was like to face grief in this life as we do, to face struggle, to face trials. He's the one who overcame it. He's the one that conquered it. Indeed, he experienced all that we have in this life. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Do you want to know why it's better to serve in heaven than reign in hell? Because Jesus knows what we went through, and he knows where we were, and he understands our temptations, and he still, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, died for us. Even when we were worthless, he still came and died for us. You tell me one other so-called deity that has ever been mentioned in this world that would do that for an undeserving wretch like me. That's our Jesus. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way. He was out without sin. And because he can sympathize with us, we know that he bears a true witness when he says in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Outside of Jesus, will you ever have peace? Will this world ever know peace until the reign of Jesus Christ is here? Until he is King of kings and Lord of lords on this earth? We won't see it happen. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Even now in the midst of this world, he says, you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. This world can't stand against him. Indeed, those who are in Christ can have peace in the midst of a world that contemplates life, death, and resurrection, or life after death, if you will. People all over this world are trying to figure out what's going to happen to us when we're done here. Oh, it's annihilation. You just gone. Now they know better than that, don't they? They know there's something. You talk to someone who's pretty rational, what are they going to say? Um, I mean, there's something. I'm a pretty good person, so I think I'll go somewhere good. Oh, good thing it's based on your merit. You guys, in the way that our world processes this, it is such good news. It is such an amazing proclamation to tell someone, you realize that what you're looking for is Jesus because he's overcome the He's overcome everything here. He lived the sinless life and he understood all the struggles that a human being like us experiences. So in a matter of handling serious questions about life and death, we have to start with Christ. We have to start with Jesus because we need to know how it was done right and we need to know where our future lies. We need to know what our path is forward. Our view of Palm Sunday comes from John chapter 12, and we look at Jesus and what this teaches us about life and death. Because I don't know if you guys remember this, but John chapter 11 is all about life and death. It's about the death of a man named Lazarus. It's about the life that Jesus gave him back. Do you think it's any coincidence that that leads right into the triumphal entry? Oh, Mary's going to wash his feet in between. Beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of servitude and love and affection towards the Savior. But you recognize that the last great sign that Jesus performed was resurrection from the dead. He was giving them a teaser trailer. He's like, you want to see what I can do? I can raise you from the dead. Do you want to see what else I can do? I can come back from the dead myself. This is the power of God over sin and death. This is proof of Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus says, I hold the keys to death in Hades. No one else. I love this stuff. I love talking about Jesus in this context because so often, you guys, we get caught up in the day-to-day grind and we miss the big picture that Jesus supersedes, 
that he has already won. And this is how he did it. So after purposely, notice this, this teaches us a lot, a lot about ourselves. After purposely delaying to come to Bethany until Lazarus was good and dead. Right? You're like, wait a second. Jesus waited. Yes, he waited till Lazarus was not only dead, but good and dead. Martha said, it's the fourth day. Behold, Lord, he stinketh. Right? Sorry, King James just comes out sometimes. But she says that. She goes, you realize that he's good and dead. Four days, that's done. After three days, they were confirmed dead, right? That's like, you're done. That was tradition. Jesus waits to the fourth day and he says, open the tomb. Roll back the stone. Martha's like, you're crazy. Jesus brings him back. And this is the final sign. And now Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem. But before we get to the Palm Sunday road, which having walked the Palm Sunday road, it's pretty impressive to kind of see the city in light. It gives you a real powerful visual of what it's like to see this pathway that leads down the Mount of Olives into the Kishon Valley and then up into Jerusalem. It's a powerful thing to see. Um, But as you walk down this road, you have a view of the old city. The old city is right across the valley in front of you, just splayed out in front of you. This is the view that Jesus would see. It's going to give a lot of power when we read at the end about something from Luke that he'll say Jesus did when he observed the city, when he saw the city of his people. So as he prepares to enter Jerusalem, before we get to the Palm Sunday road, let's look at John chapter 12, verse 9. And we'll kind of just march through this short little section and break it down as we go. Verse 9 says this, Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? Doesn't it show you the heart of man? Such hostility towards a man who's giving life. They're not denying this. They're not denying that Lazarus was dead. They're not like those fakers. They planned this whole thing. No, 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 no. There were too many witnesses. Lazarus was good and dead. They knew it. They knew this. The response of the chief priest is not only to plot the death of Jesus to silence him, but to find a way to re-kill Lazarus. To re-kill him. You're going to re-die. Think about this. That's such a weird concept. Lazarus is like, new life. Jesus is good. Would they want to do what? I just got back. I mean, like, they want to kill him again. It's crazy to me. Think of the stark contrast of the attitude of the chief priest compared to John the Baptist. Think about how when Jesus does something powerful and mighty, instead of submitting to him, they want to kill not only him, but anyone who's associated with him. See, for example, all the apostles. They want them all dead. Anyone who's going to speak against us needs to be silent and die. Think about the contrast between John the Baptist and the chief priests. People were deserting the religious leaders and following Jesus, right? These people are going after Christ, and we can't have that. Think about what happened when John the Baptist in John chapter 3 sees his followers leaving and going after Jesus. What did he say? It'll be on the screen behind me. John 3, it's a little small because it's a longer reading. 325 through 30 says this, Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Notice this. This is John's 
disciples. We got a problem. Our church is emptying out. And they're all going over there and being ministered to. (gasps) What do we do? John responded, No one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. There is to be no competition when it comes to people going after Jesus. Ever. As the people came and saw the sign of the Messiah, Lazarus raised from the dead. They believed in him. This robbed the Pharisees of their followers, and it did something that's always dangerous. It wounded their pride. You wound pride, get ready for a fight. If you are wounding someone who is prideful, get ready for a fight. And I'm not saying get ready for a fight, right? What am I saying? You better get ready to turn your cheek. We talked about this in Nehemiah chapter 6 a while back. What's our first reaction when somebody brings a slanderous claim against us? Not true. Oh man, I'm going to smash that argument. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up and I'm just going to kick them in the kneecap. And Oh, you don't react that way? Just me? That's cool. You guys, do you ever think about how we react when, you know, the sand ballot was a real tool, Okay. You can just write that down in your notes in, in Nehemiah 6. Sanballat is a tool. This guy, he's, he's coming after Nehemiah, right? Trust me, this is going somewhere. He comes after Nehemiah and it says he wrote an open letter and sent it accusing him of defecting against the king, right? Basically accusing him of, um, uh-oh, the word's escaping me. He's accusing him of uh, 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 treason. Treason, That's, I got it. Do you see that? Treason. The British guy from the Patriot popped up in my head. Treason. Like, oh, that's it. That's it. Thank you, weird British guy from the Patriot. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. That's what I just saw in my head. (sighs) Sorry, it's not puberty. I've I've been under the weather this week. That's why my voice is cracking. I mean it, you guys. (laughs) You guys, so it's treason. And they show up with an open letter. What does Nehemiah do? Does he snatch it away from him and go running down the wall? Don't listen. Don't listen to him. I'm on the up and up. Don't listen to this garbage. What does he say? There's nothing to what you're saying. I got a wall to build. What does he do? He goes back to work. He's not out there running around. He's not worried about it because senseless people will say senseless things and those senseless things will be brought into the light. Let it happen. They're slandering me. They're ruining my reputation. You ruin your reputation when you overreact and sin. Don't let them pull you into that. Don't get caught reacting to prideful people. Turn the other cheek. That doesn't mean like, oh, I hope the Lord just smashes you later. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having a Christ-like attitude. Lord, forgive them. Ask that the Lord would forgive them and move on. John eleven forty seven makes it clear The signs Jesus had done were irrefutable. The chief priests and the scribes didn't deny them. They just refused to believe in him. They refused to accept him. We'll talk about why in a minute. 
But that not only leads them to plot the death of Christ, but now Lazarus is in their crosshairs as well. And it wouldn't be enough for them to be satisfied with killing Jesus. You see, the evidence of his power is too clearly visible by looking at Lazarus. Did you notice that, Christian? I can't help myself. Did you notice that it was so visible, the work that he had done in Lazarus, that if you wanted to harm Jesus, you had to go after his follower? May we be guilty of the same association. That if people want to harm the reputation of Christ, they want to harm Jesus, that they will come after us because his mark is so clearly seen on our lives. It is so evident that we belong to him, that hurting him means hurting us. That's a good association. You're like, ah, that sounds uncomfortable. That's going to hurt me probably. Mm, Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But those who desire to live righteously in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let us be guilty of the same association. Let the workmanship of the Lord be so evident upon us, transformed that if they wish to do him harm, they must include us. They have to include us. Because we're living, breathing evidence that Jesus can bring the bed, the dead back to life. Not the bed, back to life. That doesn't make sense. But that Jesus can bring the dead back to life. Spurgeon said this, When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed and will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. So the question is, how is the enemy trying to silence your testimony and are you letting him do it? How is the enemy trying to steal or snatch away something that God has done in you? Are you letting him win? Are you letting Satan win? It's quite possible that you are in some way of your life right now. Don't be too stubborn to ask the Lord for grace. Don't be too stubborn to humble yourself and ask the Lord to change your heart. The next day, verse 12 says, the scene set now. When the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Your king is coming. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year, a census was taken of the number of lambs that were slain for Passover. The number of lambs that were slain, that figure was 256,500 for one festival. In other words, with numbers that large, it would take you a bit of time to get all those lambs into town and it wouldn't happen the day of because people were coming into town for the festival, meaning that lambs must literally be driven up to Jerusalem throughout this entire day. Consequently, whenever Jesus entered the city, there must have been some lambs about. There must have been some sound. There must have been some chatter going on from the lambs being brought 256,000 of them. This process would take some time. What's fascinating about that is here's the Lamb of God amidst all these lambs that are going to be sacrificed that cannot take away the sin of the world. But how can we not help but think of John the Baptist yet again in John one twenty nine? Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is riding into Jerusalem. Of all the lambs that were driven to Jerusalem to be sacrificed, he was the Lamb of God led by the Holy Spirit to be our atoning sacrifice, as we're told in Hebrews 10. Verses 12 through 14, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, 
sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Perfected forever those who are sanctified. One sacrifice for all. An absolute pride crusher. An absolute, there is value in what I can do, remover. Jesus did it for all, one sacrifice, every single one of us. What lay ahead of him in the coming days was abuse and slaughter. And yet, what a scene this must have been as he rode down that hill. That Palm Sunday road, can you picture it? People shouting Hosanna, laying palm branches down. Maybe some lambs coming into town. Jesus on the donkey, his disciples proclaiming him. What a moment of worship. Here our Savior was praised for who he actually is prior to his crucifixion and death. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As far as the palm branches are concerned, do you ever wonder about them? What's with the palm branches? Uh, Dating back to the Maccabees, they were a symbol of Jewish nationalism, of their king. goes all the way back to the Maccabean revolt. Crowds looking for a political leader. So what's happening here is they're shouting, Hosanna, save now. Save us. As they're shouting these things out and they're laying the palm branches down, they're saying, this is our king in the political sense. In the political sense. They aren't looking for a spiritual savior. There's an important point to be made here. It's important for us to realize that like a switch didn't get flicked in these people all of a sudden. Be like, oh wow, they actually want Jesus. How in the world did they shout crucify him less than a week later? Because they were looking for him to be what they wanted. They were looking for him to do as they wished. And Jesus doesn't reveal himself to us as what we wish him to be. Jesus reveals himself to us as he is, for that is what we need most. Jesus is there to save us from our sin, not take over and boot Rome out of the door. He's not there to make room for Rome. Couldn't make that work. I tried. He's not there to do that. That's not why he showed up. He's there to pay for the sins of the world. And that's not who they want right now. And so they will take part in condemning him. And as the crowd shouts, Hosanna, save now, they recite a messianic psalm. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. They're essentially rewording a psalm and singing it over him. And so Jesus finds a young donkey, it says, and he sat on it just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. It had been prophesied before that the Messiah would ride in on a donkey. Now we know from the other gospels that Jesus arranged for this donkey ahead of time. And for me, as I studied that when I was younger, I'd be like, I don't know, it It seems like this was so well thought out by Jesus. He sends his disciples into town. They find this donkey. They have him tied up and ready to go. And it's like, why would he be so purposeful about that very moment about needing a donkey to ride into town? Fulfillment of prophecy. He was fulfilling prophecy. This is what the scriptures say, and they must be fulfilled. Jesus didn't come to do away with the scriptures. He fulfilled them. Every line. And so here he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, but also there's something more here, a little more in depth. He was purposefully revealing humility and meekness. 
because he rode in on a donkey. A conqueror would ride into town on a war horse. That's what a conqueror or political leader would ride in on. A war horse, someone who had won battles, and that's what the Roman procession would look like. But Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday on a donkey because he was taking a different position. That of a priest or even a merchant. Someone who rode in lowly, meek. Not trying to attract that victorious general acclaim, but coming as someone on behalf of the people. Jesus revealed himself to his own people as their savior and one who brings peace. Merrill Tenney said this. This is great. He said, he did not come as a conqueror, but as a messenger of peace. He rode on a donkey, not the steed of royalty, but that of a commoner on a business trip. Isn't that Jesus? The man who had nowhere to lay his head. Where was Jesus's home that, you know, had welcome to Christ's residence written over it? That, that didn't exist. Jesus stayed with people. He didn't have riches or the things in this life that we so long after. Because Jesus came to save us from our sin. He didn't come here to get his. He didn't come here to make money. His disciples, I love this. I've told you guys about this so many times, but here goes John. John comes in with his little commentary. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. He's like, we were clueless. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. He says, in hindsight, we looked back and we're like, you remember that? That was fulfilling scripture. Huh. Weird. Right? He says, meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. So imagine this as well. While he's coming into town, this crowd that had seen Lazarus come out of the tomb, raised from the dead, they're there in this moment testifying about him raising Lazarus. This guy raised a dead man back to life again. They're telling of the great deeds of Christ. This is also why the crowd met him because they heard he had done this sign. This is why it's so important to see the triumphal entry in the light of the resurrection of Lazarus because so much of that is pertaining to this moment being what it was. This is also why the crowd met him, it says. Then the Pharisees said to one another, verse 19, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Hmm. Get to that in a second. The crowd's response to Jesus was fueled by their excitement about what he'd done for Lazarus. The disciples' excitement over Jesus is what they had seen him do throughout their time in ministry with him. They have more experience. But the crowd is inspired by this resurrection of a man who was good and dead. If Jesus could bring people back from the dead, then he could be the king that would break the yoke of Caesar once and for all. If this man can raise dead people back to life, he can do whatever he wants with Rome. They recognize that kind of power. And as the eyewitnesses testified to what Jesus had done, the crowds gathered with excitement thinking this was their moment. But this was the revelation of the Messiah they needed, not the one they wanted. It fizzles out. The Pharisees, however, are left in despair. As they stated back in chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And here they're like, see, the whole world's going after him. 
There's nothing we can do. Everyone has gone after him. Now, obviously, that's an overstatement. But in the spiritual sense, as is in the case with Caiaphas' statement about it being better that one man died than the whole nation perish, if you remember him saying that, John says he prophesied when he said that. He goes, he was right. He didn't even realize it. When Caiaphas said, it's better that one man dies for the whole nation than the whole nation perish, John's like, he didn't even know what he was saying. But Jesus was here to die for the whole nation and even more so the entire world. There was so much more in play. These men did not even know. Do you, okay, just for a second. Do you ever recognize just how clueless we are? Just how clueless we are. We think we got it all figured out. I know that this is this. This person's bad. That person's good. This is going to go here. We're going to go here. Doesn't James warn us about that? He says, before you say that you're going to go into such and such a place and start a business and make a profit, he goes, why don't you start out with if the Lord wills? Because we have evidence all throughout history of people thinking they got it figured out and they don't. They don't. This is going to make me happy. It doesn't. This is what God wants for me. No, it's not. I said this to my boys yesterday. We were getting ready to watch. I had finished my study time. We'd done men's breakfast. I was feeling good. I was like, let's watch a little Villanova versus um, Baylor, you know, because it's the Sweet 16 right now. I was like, let's watch this game. I was like, I just got a feeling. I said, And I literally said, I could be wrong, but I just got a feeling Nova's going to knock them off. They didn't. They lost. And, and I looked at us like, I told you I could be wrong, but I was like, it's funny how like if I had been right, what would I have said? Told you. I told you in there why pride that's pride i don't know what's going on i'm just like everybody else i'm just repenting to the lord as often as i can i'm just coming to the lord recognizing that i am poor in spirit that i need to be mournful of my sin that i need the mercy of god because i need to be humbled to the point of recognizing that he is the only one who can save me and hungering and thirsting after his righteousness have the beatitudes been working you guys because they are working me hard they are revealing sin in my life they are revealing brokenness and god is healing it he is fixing that brokenness and if we are not allowing him to stop it let him heal you. Let him fix that. Let him bring forgiveness in your life. This is who we need Jesus to be. And we need to recognize that we don't understand what's best for ourselves lots of the time. We're looking for him to be something we want, not who he is. This happens today. This happens today. We're like, those crazy people, my goodness. If they had known, they just would have realized that he was the Messiah. And how are we any different? How are we any different? You're like, oh, I recognize who Jesus is. Sure. Do you live like it though? Do I live like it? Do I live in that confidence? Do I live in that peace? Do I live in that forgiveness? Do I recognize that it's day by day until glory? Or am I over here like, okay, if we scheme it this way, we work it out that way. Perfect. Right? You know, like we're trying to map everything in our lives out to, to the final detail. And as these Religious leaders of the Jews look at Jesus. They are so frustrated because they cannot control what is happening to him. And even when they think they are, they're not. Even when they think they finally got him right where they want him, they're not in control. Jesus makes that clear every time. He's going to the cross willingly. And he's not going to do it until it's time. Even to the point of in the garden, when they come up and he says, who are you looking for? They're like, we're looking for Jesus. He goes, I'm here. (laughs) They all fall back. He goes, get back up. Who are you looking for? Jesus, well, I'm him. They all go down again. He's like, you guys understand what he's doing that for, right? 
He's making a point. You're not taking me under your power. I'm coming with you of my own choice. All throughout his life, Jesus made that clear. Church, Jesus is going to do what he wants. Let's just get on board. Let's just ask him what that is and be a part of it. You're like, that seems so simple, but it's so difficult because we're so prideful. And this is where humility is so essential for us. These guys, they were concerned that a few Judeans were being influenced, but their words expressed John's conviction that Jesus was, in fact, conquering the world. They totally misunderstood him. They were concerned about their people around him going, you're actually following, they're, see, they're following this guy. Now what are we going to do? We are out of a job, son. Right? That's not what the point was at all. Jesus was saving the world from their sin. And here he is in his city. And while Matthew and Mark's account transition from this point to Jesus cleansing the temple, which he did, and John's account will move to Greeks who are seeking after Jesus at this point, Luke's account reveals something else that happens right here. This is what I talked about at the beginning. We'll close with this. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. When he drew near and saw the city, remember I talked about that road and seeing the city, he wept. If you look at that word wept, it's a sobbing. In the Greek, it's a sobbing. He sobbed over the city. Jesus bawled his eyes out when he looked at Jerusalem at this moment. He said this, would that you even knew Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't understand what was happening. This should have been a day of victory as the word of the prophets was being fulfilled right before the people's eyes. Gals, I'm happy to come up. Rather than understanding the day of their visitation, they're blinded because they're looking for Jesus to be something they want and not what they need. As we prepare to worship, you guys, We're given opportunity in a fresh way this morning to receive Jesus as he is. To look at our own hearts, to examine ourselves and recognize whether we have received him as something we want or something that we need. And I'm distinguishing between those two as want being the desire of our flesh and need being our spirit. That means that when I recognize that Jesus is who I need, that I have to accept his terms. I have to accept who he is. You know, you realize how often, especially in our current society, our current culture, people want things on their own terms. I'm okay with this as long as it's on my own terms, as long as it's favorable for me. But they misunderstand often what's favorable for them. And God knows what's best. Jesus knows what's best, and we need to come to him humbly and say, I will accept the terms you give me because he is good, and he is faithful, and he is our creator, and he knows what's best. That requires a humble heart. It requires examination. Jesus doesn't come oftentimes the way that we want him to. We want him to ride in on that conquering horse. 
cast out the darkness. Jesus comes humble and meek, riding on a donkey, shining light into the darkness, giving us strength in our weakness. How many times have we asked him to remove something and he did not? That doesn't mean you have weak faith. It means you're like Paul. Because Paul said, I prayed three times that the Lord would take this away from me in 2 Corinthians 12. And he goes, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says that's why we showed up to that church in Corinth in weakness, in brokenness, in fear and in trembling. You're like, oh, that must have been trembling spirit. No, the trembling could have been a physical trembling as well. Absolute physical brokenness. And he said, so that you would know Jesus Christ and him crucified so that you would know Christ's purpose, his message for his glory. Let's take the opportunity this morning to ask the Lord to do something special this week as we go into Good Friday and Easter and to really keep us focused on him. I encourage you to read these passages, especially here in John. It's a great section to go into. If you finish chapter 12, the upper room discourse begins in John 13 and goes all the way through John 17. Read about his last teachings to his disciples. You're going to learn about feet washing. You're going to learn about the expectation of the Holy Spirit, about being connected to the vine and letting him flow through you, about how God is the vine dresser in John 15, and he comes and he prunes. We talked about that at our home group on Tuesday. That's a fun subject. You know, God is the vine dresser. What does that mean? It means he prunes us. Sounds painful. (laughs) Yep. Yep. But it produces more fruit, doesn't it? That's what he came to do. Lord, as we take this time to um, focus on you, Lord, to prepare our hearts for just a week of, I hope, Lord, just an extra double down on, on just saturation in your word. Lord, we want it all the time, but we're, We're given these special times a year to challenge us in this way, and I pray that it would. I pray that we enjoy it so much we just keep doing it, soaking in your word all the time. But Lord, as we remember why you came and that it was for your purposes and that that was for our benefit, teach us to trust you afresh. Teach us that reliance again. As we worship, Lord, we ask that you would stir our hearts to response. and, And as we pray, Pull the things up out of our heart that need to be addressed. Help us to forgive. Help us to experience your cleansing, your renewal, your refreshment, and your peace. Let's continue to pray. Let's keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Just take a moment with the Lord as we begin to worship and um, and just uh, ask the Lord to stream.